Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Gathered for Worship. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Praying People of God. I have begun a one-week brief topical study about the people of God gathered together for worship. Worship, as many of my listeners know, has for some time now been a matter of some controversy. We have now had something which has been described as you know, nothing short of the worship wars. But for my part, I have not wanted to enter into that, for at least from my vantage point, a great deal of debate has centered around you know, the style of music which we should sing. And I'll say something about that later in the series. But for my part, worship is not an expression of what we should want, but rather a submissive response of what God has commanded of us. We're to worship him. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That is to say, we worship not as an expression of our desires, but we worship the Lord in order to ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. We repeat back to God what he has revealed of himself to us. And as we do that, we proclaim the greatness of God as well as our delight in God. Furthermore, we also proclaim our confident trust in God as well as our desperate need for God. But perhaps most of all, we express the gospel of Jesus, that the great God so loved us that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now then, having said that we are to worship God, well, that helps us to understand what we are all about when we come together. We come to worship the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I say that because in recent years, it seems that the entire focus of worship has shifted from ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name to using our joint gathering as a tool for outreach or of evangelism. Now, before you get your guard up, hear me out. I think there's something wonderfully attractive to a non-Christian about worship. It's attractive because we were all created for worship. And when the people who have never known our God see God's people in worship, it can create in them a longing for that very thing. And that longing can lead to their salvation. And so I'm not saying that our corporate worship of the one true God doesn't have the capacity to reach out and to draw the lost. But here's where I take issue. In recent years, the church growth movement has counseled us so to arrange our worship services to reach out to the felt needs of the hearer. Find out, we're told, what is the culture around you and what are their needs. And then find a need and fill it. Find a hurt and heal it. That kind of thing. And so the structure of our worship moved from ascribing glory to God to constructing a meeting that will engage unreached people and make a service they're going to find both comfortable and engaging and inviting. You know, that's led to ever-increasing innovation so that with each passing decade to a decade and a half, we are reinventing worship entirely. And as we constantly innovate and look for new avenues of outreach, we've all lost the connection of what God demands of us when we gather together, that we are to ascribe glory to God in the way that he has demanded. Now, if you listened to me yesterday, you heard me talk about the basic foundation stones that are necessary as we worship God. 
So I've spoken about singing and preaching and praying and reading scripture, participating in the sacraments or the ordinances, and giving an offering. I mean, those elements may not be neglected. And so today I want to speak most specifically about the worshiping people of God gathered together in prayer. Six times in the Psalms, we hear the words, hear my prayer, O God. So for instance, Psalm 102, verses 1 and 2, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So do you see the cry? God, I'm needy, and I plead with you. Answer me when I call. Or listen to Psalm 88, 1 to 2. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. See, the Psalms are full of those kinds of prayers. And remember, the Psalms were the worship manual for ancient Israel and for the early church. Prayer is central to Christian worship. Or think about the words that were said of the very first Christian church in Jerusalem. It's found in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So prayers were central to the fellowship of the early church. We were told that after watching Jesus in prayer that his disciples asked him to teach them to pray. And from that, let me give words of instruction for every church. We should, and by we I mean we the church, in the way that we worship, we should be instructing people not only in our prayers, but they should observe our prayers and learn how to pray themselves. And so let me begin with a conviction. Congregational worship is essentially an interaction with God, and prayer is central to that. I said it yesterday, I'm going to repeat it today. One of the saddest features of the contemporary church is that people go to church and don't think of it as a place of prayer. You know, they sing, they hear preaching, they don't pray. And what I speak to today is to convince you that we need to restore prayer in worship not because it's a neat way to reach the so-called unchurched, but rather because our holy God demands that we are a people of prayer and that we gather as a place of prayer. So how is that done? Well, this is essential because a great many people have been to church for years and have never seen it as a place of praying. How do we make it that? Well, let me offer up a number of types of praying that can be done as God's people gather. First, think of the opening prayer, or as some have called it, the prayer of invocation. And here, please don't hear me tilting in any direction. I mean, what I mean is, I'm fully aware that some services are more formal and others are more informal. But I would argue that very close to the beginning of a service, prayer should be offered up calling for God to make his presence known among his people. We might ask the Holy Spirit to lay our hearts bare so that we're not distracted from that which is ultimately important. Or we might begin with prayers of adoration of our triune God. Opening prayers might also address the attributes of God. That is, his wisdom, his justice, his love, his omnipresence, his holiness, his mercy, his truthfulness, even his wrath against all evil. You know, the one who prays might make use of scripture. The one praying might begin the service by quoting, let's say, Psalm 139, 7 to 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, the important thing about opening prayers is they gather the congregation together announcing that we're the people of prayer. 
but announcing also that the God we have come to worship is altogether worthy and holy as we worship. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not here indicating what your order of service or your liturgy should look like. I'm, however, arguing that prayer somewhere near the beginning of the service indicates to God's people that we've come together in the presence of God and that he's approached in faith through our Lord Jesus Christ on bended knee in prayer. And so I call this kind of praying, praying that expresses our adoration of our triune God. So let's go to a second kind of praying that I think is also necessary in our praying. You remember the Lord's Prayer? You know, if we had time, we would take the time to show that, you know, Jesus has shown us how we should pray, but part of the praying that he gave us is that we confess our sins. Many of us heard the expression, you know, throwing out the baby with the bath water. You know, that means that we reject something that, and in the process of rejecting it, we throw out what's significant. See, a great many Protestant evangelical believers reject the Roman Catholic confessional, rightly so. But in the process, we've also thrown out the confession of sins as a part of worship. So truth be told, many of us have also memorized a pattern of praying in our private prayers. And we've used the acronym ACTS, adoration, confession, thankfulness, and supplication. But here, let's talk about that confession part. You know, James 5 tells us to confess our sins to one another. And furthermore, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And furthermore, Jesus taught us to confess our sins. And we have examples in Scripture in which God's people jointly confess their sins. James tells us to do so, you know, in some kind of a public setting. And 1 John promises us that cleansing follows the confession of sins when it's done in the name of Jesus. And for all of those reasons, it seems to me then that congregational confession of sins ought to be a part of worship. After all, all manner of people come to worship feeling unworthy and unclean and having a vague feeling that something's wrong. And the gospel teaches us that Jesus is a savior from our sins. And for this reason, confession makes much of the fact that Jesus is the only savior. One of our favorite aspects of being a multimedia Bible broadcasting association is getting to connect with such a wide audience. Not only do we want you to hear our broadcasts, but we want to hear from you too. If you've been encouraged by our Bible teaching and engagement resources, we would love to hear about it. Dave recently wrote, I have learned so much from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thank you to all involved in making this happen. Donating to the cause is a small thing I can do in return for all the hard work that you put into it. So let us know how the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt have impacted your life. Email us at info at backtothebible.ca or visit backtothebible.ca and click on contact and leave your message there or simply call 1-800-663-2425. So how should the worshiping community of God confess their sins? 
Well, a great many churches before the celebration of the Lord's table do allow for a quiet time to confess whatever sins that each might have had before they approach the table of the Lord. And that's good. But people often need a model to help them to do so well. So I'm arguing for a practice that has almost been forgotten. And just a note before I carry on, let me add my own confession right here. You know, for most of my ministry career, I didn't do this. And if I had to do it all over again, I now insist on it. Indeed, I would gladly now either be fired or not hired in the first place on this basis. I'd put it in. Confession of sin reminds us of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar and his truth is not in us. And furthermore, regular confession of sins brings us to a state of humility and also highlights our dependence on God. So let's talk about how a congregation might do confession of sins. You know, a great many congregations have a common confession that is repeated by the entire congregation. And they see lines on a screen that goes as follows. Almighty and most merciful God, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have offended you. Spare all them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord, and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake that we may live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. See, a great many congregations repeat that. You know, I have a book on my shelf. It's very useful in my private prayers. It's called Valley of Vision, which is a collection of the prayers of the Puritans. And it includes a section on prayers of confessions, which can be included in a congregational prayer. And here I'm suggesting that it comes up on the screen. All of God's people can read and pray it together. Or we might simply want to pray the words of Scripture. Psalm 51, 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I mean, after such a prayer is said together by a congregation, perhaps the pastor, can repeat words from the gospel that all who are truly repentant of their sins and trust wholly in Christ's atoning sacrifices are reminded that in this worship service, they are pronounced clean from every stain and spot and are presented to God as his holy people. Well, I've presented two kinds of praying in a worship service. I mean, one's the prayer of adoration, extolling the greatness of God. The second is the prayer of repentance and the announcement of the good news of the gospel, that all who trust in Jesus are cleansed from their sin and from all unrighteousness. But there are other kinds of praying as well. A third kind of praying is the prayers that are made for things. I mean, these are our requests before God. And it's here in our requests that God tells us how we are to pray. Let's start with 1 Timothy. You know, as you might know, 1 Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles. Timothy was sent by Paul to give leadership to the church in Ephesus. And as leader of that church, Paul has instructions for Timothy as how he is to lead God's people. And so, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, 
lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In every place, that is, in every place where God's people meet. But at the beginning of that chapter, Paul's specific about what they should be praying for. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So for our purposes today, I'm not going to dwell on the four words for praying, but did you notice that Paul demands that the gathered church should pray for all people? That's a tall order. How do you do that? But Paul has something in mind, and he tells us, verses 2 and 4, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So when the church goes to pray, be that in you know a pastoral prayer, or when someone from the congregation is called upon to stand at the front, lead the church in praying, it's important that we do pray for our nation, for our political leaders, for the welfare of the nation. We beseech God that the situation in our country would be favorable to the receptivity of the gospel. And on a personal note here, since the nature of our nation is now in such a horrible state, I would think that praying for our nation should be done in earnest. God has said that he wants his church to do this. We also know that we must pray for the needs of God's people in the church. This prayer often includes prayer for the sick, for the families of those who have lost a loved one, along with other specific needs so that the congregation might jointly pray for the whole. Now, as I've said, such praying has in the past been called the pastoral prayer. And not saying a pastor has to do it. Someone else from the congregation might do that. But I would say that it should be well-constructed and be ready on the Lord's Day to lead God's people in prayer. Again, let me press this point home. Such praying is not a matter of taste or of a matter of style. It's commanded of us. Let me add another matter. It's the matter of praying for the private needs of people. A number of churches open up prayer either at the front or in some other place while the congregation sings. So various prayers stand ready to pray for God's people and the rest of the congregation. And on this point, many churches have tried this, but then they find out no one ever comes forward for prayer. And to a large degree, that's because it hasn't been the custom and people feel awkward doing it. So if you're interested in this, let me give you some encouragement. I suggest that it begin in your home Bible study groups. Home Bible study leaders can encourage certain people that during the week to agree to come to be prayed for that next Sunday. Consider carefully what requests they might have. Be ready to be prayed for. And then when the call goes out, if anyone needs prayer, please come forward now they are ready to do so immediately. See, on a personal note, I've participated in this for many years. And amazingly, I've led many people to faith in Christ at these prayer altars, made available while God's people sing. Singing and praying does provide for a platform in which the Holy Spirit speaks. And often the Holy Spirit is speaking both to believers and to non-believers. Indeed, I've seen people both healed and saved at these prayer altars. And so think of what we're describing. A worship begins in prayer, acknowledging the greatness of God, and acknowledges our sin, and then rejoicing in the mercy of God that flows from the cross of our Lord. And then prayers for all people, including those in the congregation. And then as God's people sing, perhaps, perhaps, space can be made to come and bring you requests. See, in this fashion, the words of Jesus come true. My house shall be called a house of prayer. 
the anticipation when people come together to be gathered in God's presence that this is a place of prayer can be a joyful expectation. It can be the highlight of the service. Now, are we done speaking about prayer? Well, let me add one final word. You know, a fifth word is about prayer that closes the service. What should be prayed right before people leave? You know, one feature that has often gone missing now is a prayer of benediction at the close of a service. Some churches do that in terms of a very formal prayer, and they sometimes take it from Scripture itself. I mean, sometimes the prayer of Aaron is used, and that's found in Numbers 624 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There are other prayers of blessing found in the New Testament as well, and one might utilize them, or it can be a free prayer, simply that God would attend his people as they now scatter. You know, it's a way as God's people scatter to be assured that they have worshiped God and God will continue to be with them. He won't leave them. He won't forsake them. One final word of conclusion. I've tried not to put together a liturgy or a necessary order of service. A number of different orders of service can be put together. But I want to encourage the Church of Jesus to be filled with intentional praying, praying that's obedient to Scripture, and praying that reaches deeply into the hearts of God's people and lets them know our God is at hand. He is close to us. He is there and he is always our Savior. Thanks so much for your message today, John. Let me ask you a quick question, though. Is it possible that how we worship is more than worship? It is actually a teaching tool. You know, absolutely, Ben. I mean, I I think that what we do in our devotional life, you know, private devotionals throughout the week, Well, that can be informed by the kind of worship that we have on the Lord's Day when we gather together. And that is to say, as we watch how prayers are done, how confession of sin is done, how reading of the word is done, uh, we can just repeat that in our own private life. So it really is a teaching tool um, that, uh, you know, takes the corporate worship of God's people and then brings that into our own private devotion or maybe even our, our home Bible study group. And uh, we begin to repeat that and we learn from our corporate worship how we worship God every single day. And uh, I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to think that way um, when we plan for worship services. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Gathered for Worship right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month on Back to the Bible Canada, we express gratitude to our monthly partners and earnestly celebrate all those who privilege this ministry with their gracious support every month. Your consistent gift ensures Bible teaching and engagement resources continue to be offered through a wide variety of mediums across Canada and around the globe. We invite you to join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program. And in so doing, You'll not only help to sustain and grow this ministry, but in appreciation each year, you'll receive our annual scripture calendar, a copy of an annual CD series, and an exclusive 15% discount on all of our Bible teaching and engagement resources. 
For more information on becoming an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner or to join, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.